This week, Windstream second liens organized with Millbank after court rules for Aurelius, more FERC positioning in PG&E, Bristow discloses possible covenant non-compliance. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast where we, on a weekly basis, bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Alex Brosman. Later, Deputy Managing Editor Angelo Thalassenos will delve into the political, regulatory, and Chapter 11 risks and considerations with respect to the PG&E restructuring with UC Hastings Associate Professor of Law, Jared Elias. It's Sunday, February 24th. Sources told Reorg this week that a group of Windstream second lien note holders is working with Millbank as legal advisor. The move to organize comes in the wake of Judge Furman's February 15th decision in favor of hedge fund Aurelius, ruling that the 2015 Unity spinoff violated the indenture of the 6.375% unsecured notes due 2023, and that a subsequent exchange offer in 2017 did not waive or cure the default. The judge wrote that Windstream engaged, quote, in an impermissible sale and leaseback transaction, and that its subsequent maneuver did not waive or cure the default arising from that breach. As analyzed by Reorg, the ruling implicates cross-default issues in regard to Windstream's other funded debt, as well as questions regarding Windstream's lease with, with Unity. CEO Tony Thomas said the company is, quote, disappointed in and frankly surprised by the ruling and will be taking immediate steps to pursue all available options, including post-trial motions and an appeal. Aurelius said in its own statement that it is, quote, gratified by Judge Furman's decision, adding that Windstream's plan to appeal is, quote, welcome news because the telecommunications company will have to post a surety bond exceeding $300 million. That surety bond, quote, will pay in full the notes our fund owns when Windstream loses the appeal, Aurelius said. The company postponed its fourth quarter and full year 2018 earnings release that had been scheduled for February 21st, but expects to release the results no later than March 18th. Elsewhere, a general interest question regarding a Windstream Services LLC credit event has been submitted and is pending consent at the CDS Determinations Committee. The litigation jockeying in the PG&E debtor's adversary proceeding against FERC relating to the jurisdictional dispute tied to the rejection of PPAs continued this week. On Friday, a group of PPA counterparties, including Calpine, Clearway Energy, Consolidated Edison, Exelon, and NextEra, filed a joinder to FERC's motion to withdraw the reference and motion to expedite that withdrawal. The FERC motion seeks to shift the litigation from bankruptcy court to the district court. The day before, on Thursday evening, the UCC in the PG&E cases filed a motion to intervene in the adversary proceeding against FERC. Last week, FERC filed an opposition to the debtor's preliminary injunction motion, seeking an order enforcing the automatic stay as to, on the first part, the FERC proceedings. Any entities attempt to enforce the January 25th FERC order find concurrent jurisdiction over the debtor's rights to reject PPAs. And lastly, any action by FERC or others that would attempt to nullify or impede the bankruptcy court's exclusive authority over the debtor's requests to assume or reject executory contracts. Parties have continued to hire advisors in the cases as well, including the California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, with Ducera Partners and Paul Weiss, the Unsecured Creditors Committee with Millbank, Centerview, and FTI, 
and the California governor with Guggenheim Securities, as well as O'Melveny as legal counsel. Also this week, the U.S. trustee filed an amended notice of the appointment of the official committee of tort claimants in the PG&E cases, reflecting the resignation of Richard Heffern and the addition of Tommy Way. The composition of the 11-member committee is otherwise unchanged. The tort claimants committee selected Baker Hostetler as its legal advisor as well, Reorg reported this week. Aviation Services Company, Bristow, said in a release Tuesday that it discovered possible non-compliance with non-financial covenants and needs more time to complete a review of its existing processes and controls before it can file its 10-Q for the quarter ending December 31, 2018. Bristow, which last week announced the termination of its acquisition of Columbia Helicopters, along with a, quote, material weakness in internal controls over financial reporting, had previously planned to file the form no later than February 19th. The need to assess potential noncompliance began when Bristow's senior management became aware that certain pledged and leased helicopter engines were not treated as is required under certain of the secured financing and helicopter lease agreements. According to the release, all issues related to the matter were cured prior to December 31st for all but nine engines relating to, th- to three agreements. The company said it has obtained waivers of noncompliance under the applicable agreements, but, quote, unless certain actions are taken, accounting rules may require the company to reclassify certain debt balances from long-term to short-term. Such reclassification could result in Bristow determining that there is a requirement to include going concern language in its 10-Q and prior filings. The company also disclosed in an 8-K filed on Tuesday that it had amended its April 2018 ABL facility to waive certain defaults and shorten the maturity date to December 21, 2021 from April 2023. Reorg reported on Friday that, according to several sources close to the matter, the First Circuit's February 15th decision finding the nomination process of the Promisa Oversight Board members unconstitutional may narrow the window of time available to reach debt restructuring deals with Commonwealth creditors before the membership of the board begins to change. While the reduced time frame may pressure parties to resume consensual debt talks, this latest decision by the First Circuit may, on the other hand, embolden creditors to push for litigated outcomes, the sources added. An appeal of the ruling by the Oversight Board or the U.S. Solicitor General could stay the decision and void some of its impact, as members' terms are set to expire in September, according to sources. The decision comes during a critical juncture in negotiations over the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authorities, or PREPA's, debt, and amid recent turbulence in efforts to reach a consensual Commonwealth plan of adjustment. Late on Tuesday, a group of employees' retirement system bondholders, represented by Jones Day and White and Case, moved for an order appointing the bondholders, or a bondholder-approved independent fiduciary, as trustees under Section 926 of the Bankruptcy Code to pursue certain avoidance claims on behalf of ERS against the Commonwealth. Focusing on Act 106 and Joint Resolution 188, which the bondholders assert rendered ERS insolvent, The proposed complaint, if pursued, would seek to avoid certain transfers as unauthorized by the court or the bankruptcy code and as voidable under Puerto Rico law as fraudulent transfers. Also in Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rico Energy Bureau announced that it is reviewing PREPA's draft integrated resource plan and will determine within 30 days of the IRP's February 13th submission date if it complies with applicable regulatory requirements, according to a February 15th PREB order. 
If the PREB determines that PREPA filed a complete IRP, it will issue a resolution establishing a procedural calendar for the case. The draft IRP, among other things, sets four-year targets to introduce 720 to 1200 megawatts of solar power generation, 440 to 900 megawatts of battery energy storage, calls for three new liquefied natural gas terminals, and states that, quote, most of the existing generation fleet should be retired by 2025. Other top red stories of the week were health products, pharmaceutical ingredients, and performance chemicals company Aceto Corporation files Chapter 11 in New Jersey to sell assets. Payless files for Chapter 11 protection in the U.S., intends to file for CCAA protection in Canada. Adiant files 8K amendment moving covenant step-down date forward by a quarter. Adds new tier to pricing schedule if leverage rises over four times. Next, here's legal analyst Karen Lung standing in for Jim Holloway with the week ahead. On Monday, February 25th, a fourth quarter earnings call for McDermott will kick off a busy week of earnings. McDermott's JV partner, Chioda, got things started a little earlier than planned when it announced another loss related to the company's Cameron LNG project. We'll look out for more disclosure about this project on Monday. We'll also be watching the continued confirmation hearing in Nine West. The shoe retailer began its confirmation trial early in February before hitting the pause button after the debtors reached a settlement with the 2019 and 2034 notes trustees, who are the only economic parties that still objected to the plan. The debtors filed a third amended plan incorporating that global settlement last week, and they'll return to court on Monday to seek confirmation of that updated plan. In Delaware, the bankruptcy court will hear the LBI media debtors' motion to enforce the automatic stay against certain second lien note holders. LBI says that the junior notes parties have violated the intercreditor agreement by filing state court litigations pre-bankruptcy, and that the second lien note holders have also violated the automatic stay through their actions in the Chapter 11 case. Monday afternoon, Judge Marvin Isger will hold a hearing in the Parker drilling case to determine scheduling for a motion to appoint an examiner filed by Bering LLC, a minority note holder. Last week, Bering, who manages funds and investment accounts owning $35 million of the six and three quarters unsecured notes due 2022, filed a motion asking for an examiner to be appointed in order to investigate whether the plan process has been, quote, usurped by the backstop commitment parties. Bering also says that the plan confirmation hearing shouldn't be held until an examiner finishes that investigation. Heading into Tuesday, we'll be listening to fourth quarter earnings calls from Hertz, Mallinckrodt, Tenet Healthcare, Tidewater, Frontier Communications, and Weight Watchers. We'll also be watching the start of the multi-day plan confirmation hearing in Westmoreland Coal. Wednesday will bring us more earnings calls from Chesapeake Energy, Dean Foods, Danbury, Foresight Energy, and California Resources. There will also be a preliminary injunction scheduling and status conference in the PG&E case. On Thursday, Pacific Gas and Electric is back again, but this time out of court. The utility will report its fourth quarter results. However, it will not hold a conference call. Also on tap for earnings on Thursday will be Endo International, Vistra, JCPenney, WT Offshore, Acorn, and Verso Paper.
Unity will also discuss results on Thursday, and let's hope they shed some light on anything related to their master lease with Windstream. In court, Shopco will seek approval of its disclosure statement at a hearing. Finally, Synergy Pharmaceuticals will close out the week on Friday when it asks the court to approve the sale of its assets to Bosch Health, formerly Valiant Pharmaceuticals, for $200 million. That's all for the week ahead. Back to you, Alex. Thank you, Karen. And now we'll have Angelo and Professor Elias on to take us through PG&E. Thanks. I'm here today with Jared Elias, an Associate Professor of Law at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law, to talk about PG&E. Fun fact, Jared and I started in the Brown Rudnick Restructuring Group together back in 2008 and now find ourselves in academia and media, respectively, both with a continued focus on bankruptcy and restructuring. Welcome to the podcast, Jared. Um, and thank you for inviting me, Angelo. And it's really funny if you think about, um, you know, we are people who started our career in bankruptcy law in 2008. We are the most traumatized of all generations of lawyers. And yet here we are today. Very, very well said. <laughs> well, let's, let's start it off. So to start, um, Jared, why don't you tell us a bit about PG&E's privately owned public utility structure and some accompanying considerations? We can then delve into some political aspects later. All right, so that sounds perfect. So one of the things that I've had to learn about, so, you know, as Angelo said, you know, we both grew up as restructuring lawyers at Brown Rudnick during the financial crisis. And one of the things that I've had to learn about that's different about PG&E as opposed to other distressed situations is the fact that PG&E is kind of like <coughs> this compromise institution. So PG&E has always been this you know, privately, it's a company that is publicly regulated, it's funded with private capital, and there's a negotiation between the private investors and public regulators about, you know, what the return that the private investors are going to get is, and to the extent there are tort damages, um, who has to bear those damages? So um, let's imagine there were to be, you know, PG is not in bankruptcy, um, and PG&E causes some tort damages somewhere. Um, the law provides for a process where um, PG&E will then go to their regulator and say, are we allowed to raise rates and pass on the costs related to this disaster to ratepayers? Um, and then the regulator has a process that they'll go through in order to decide, are you allowed to do that? Um, and there's a legal standard that is something to the effect of, were you acting prudently? So the regulator will say, well, if there were damages that were caused, but they weren't really your fault, maybe we'll let you raise rates and pass them on to ratepayers. Um, and if they weren't, then maybe it's the private investors who have to sort of bear the pain. So PG&E has always been this, this unique company that has this legal superstructure around it that creates this negotiation between private investors and ratepayers about who's going to bear losses associated with the fact that what PG&E does is, one, important, but two, also very hazardous and causes problems. And we've seen some changes in the law recently. Uh, SB 901, of course, comes to mind. Um, and, and that one, right, is 2017 and 2019 wildfires related, uh, potentially at least. Uh, but that still leaves sort of a lot of room for interpretation. Has that law been uh, in interpreted at this point or, or used? So SB 901, I... I that is the Wildfire Cost Recovery Act that the California legislator passed, um, and it was meant to make it easier for um, 
PG&E to recover and securitize and, and borrow money essentially to pay for damages that were caused in the 2017 wildfires. Um, that law is out there. Um, I don't believe that PG&E has yet to actually make use of that securitization facility. Um, I have to imagine that it would be hard for them to do now that they're in bankruptcy. I don't know what the appetite is in Sacramento for them to actually do it. Um, but you know, that was an example of, Cal of PG&E had caused so many damages or were liable for so many damages related to wildfires um, that the legislature was willing to do something to help them out. Um, and that's different than the normal process that the law usually creates, where it's the California Public Utilities Commission that kind of mediates and decides who's going to bear losses, investors or ratepayers. Interesting. So why don't we shift just a little bit, but sort of still keeping the political legal spectrum specific to California, how does inverse condemnation and how it's been interpreted and used in California uh, play a role here? Okay, so inverse condemnation is fascinating. Um, and, you know, Angelo, you're a lawyer. Um, you, you remember in constitutional law there was this idea that if the government takes property from private citizens, they have to pay compensation. You know, there's eminent domain law and there's takings law. Inverse condemnation is a doctrine that's related to takings law. The idea is that um, if there are losses caused by the government, it shouldn't matter, or if there are losses that the government contributed to, it shouldn't matter whether the government was negligent in causing those losses, um, the government should have to pay for those losses. It's kind of like a way to socialize losses caused by the government. And again, it's related to takings doctrine. Um, Inverse condemnation is a doctrine that has arisen from interpretations of the California Constitution by the California courts, most importantly, the California Supreme Court. And something that's important that I don't think that many people understand is it doesn't, at least I don't see the route that the legislature in Sacramento would have to changing this doctrine. I believe it would require an interpretation of the California Supreme Court or more likely an amendment to the California state constitution. That's interesting. So, and we did see in 2018, um, there were there was a legal challenge uh, that was not successful, and there was also at least part of I, I believe SB 901 at least some talk about the legislature doing just that in terms of uh, an amendment, but that also was unsuccessful. Uh, do you see any appetite for that in in 2019? I don't. And what makes this so hard is I don't think, um, and I don't think they. Most people believe that Sacramento on its own can solve this problem. This kind of liability regime that's created by inverse condemnation will probably require an amendment to the California state constitution. Um, it could be that there's a way to get around that. I just haven't seen exactly what that would be. Um, an amendment to the California state constitution is a hard lift. That'll require a vote of you know, California voters. And I have to imagine the appetite among California voters to provide relief to PG&E is pretty limited. Um, Angela, something that you may not appreciate in New York is the extent to which people around here just hate PG&E. Um, there were, you know, two summers in a row, um, walking outside in beautiful San Francisco, the air was polluted and foul and stunk of smoke. Um, I was awoken one morning in my apartment by the stench of smoke that had seeped in and I thought something had been left on burning. Wow. And it does not lead to a great appetite among voters. I, I can imagine. Company. Yeah, I yeah. can imagine. 
Well, all right. So let, let's let's shift to the the actual bankruptcy. Um, I, I know you have some interesting thoughts on this that that I want to make sure our, our listeners um, hear, and and that's part of here the the bankruptcy process risk. Um, so the bankruptcy process risk. Is- yeah, and then sort of what here we have right wildfire liability claims prepetition, um, but there's also potential for postpetition claims, and sort of how yeah. do how do you view that, and and sort of what other things uh, do you think about um, how maybe investors are thinking of the Chapter Eleven process and any sort of related risks. Yeah, I th- so for some reason, my sense is that investors are not focused on the risk of 2019 wildfires. The way the bankruptcy law works um, is that if there are wildfires in 2019, while PG&E is in bankruptcy, those wildfire claimants will have administrative claims that are entitled to be paid first. This creates tremendous risk for the pre-bankruptcy bondholders and wildfire victims who might find all of the value sort of drained out of the company um, by admin claimants. That's just, you know, this is an incredible unusual situation in that this is a possibility where there's this unknown um, admin tort liability that might swamp the prepetition creditors. So this is something that's new. I don't think investors are completely focused on it. It's hard to wrap your head around, and it's something we really have no ability to predict. Um, you have seen in different press forums um, PG&E suggesting that maybe they're going to make an argument that um, costs related to 2019 wildfire victims aren't actual and necessary for preserving the estate, and so maybe they aren't entitled to admin priority. But that that argument seems pretty weak to me. That that's interesting, and and we did hear in the first day. Um, at least with the pre-petition wildfire liability claims that the company is discussing at least or, or perhaps negotiating some sort of trust mechanism. Uh, what do you think of that? So that's the obvious place for this case to go, where they'll create some sort of trust that will have some sort of claims reconciliation and resolution process for the, for the wildfire victims. They'll put a bunch of value in it. They'll do some actuarial calculations, and they'll try to have enough money there to pay off the 2017s and the 2018s. Um, but this trust, you know, unusually among mass tort bankruptcies, PG&E is still going to have problems related to wildfire liability after they leave bankruptcy. So that trust is for pre-bankruptcy creditors. It's not going to solve the problem related to post-bankruptcy PG&E liability to make a plan feasible. And you know, this, this unknown risk of admin wildfire victims just sits out there, you know, hanging over everything. So, so that's a great segue. So let's say that they get to a resolution on a trust for pre-petition wildfire liability claims. Uh, let's say bondholders get on board. Uh, the two official committees at this point, let's say they get on board and we get to a plan process. How does the bankruptcy court look at plan feasibility? Uh, the, some of the jurisprudence out there uh, suggests that the standard is, is there a reasonable assurance of success of a plan? How does that play into uh, the, the bankruptcy court's uh, interpretation of that, especially as it comes to those post-petition wildfire claims, but also any post-bankruptcy wildfire claims? 
That's a great question, and it's really unknown just how Judge Montali is going to tackle this because the situation is incredibly unique. I'm unaware of any other situation with parallel facts um, because you do have this problem hanging over everything where PG&E probably can't leave bankruptcy um, solving the inverse condemnation problem because that requires a California constitutional amendment. Um, most likely, or um, making it so they don't have any wildfire risk going forward because PG&E has lots and lots of overground power wires that'd be really expensive to try to underground. So it really depends on what the judge's tolerance for risk is going to be. Is Judge Montali going to be willing to approve a plan where PG&E proposes to, for example, buy a lot of insurance? You know, will there actually be a market for $20 billion every summer in wildfire insurance caused by California drought conditions? Um, we really don't know. Um, it's going to be a really difficult thing for Judge Montali to navigate, and I don't think we know yet just where he's going to come out on it. Yeah, uh, very interesting. And we, we saw from the, the company's disclosures, but also just part of the dip financing, um, a sort of two-year bankruptcy process that's being contemplated with, uh, at least in the dip, an option to, to add a third year of financing. Is that the sort of time frame we should be uh, viewing here for, for this process? That certainly sounds right to me. Um, most companies that file for bankruptcy these days have some sort of idea. They may not have a plan that's totally signed in hand, but they have an idea of where things are going. I don't think PG&E's management team right now really has a sense of where this is all going and how they're going to get out of bankruptcy. So it's going to take a while to try to get to an idea. And then once you have an idea, they're going to have to litigate it and get people on board. So this is certainly set up for a prolonged bankruptcy process. Okay. Uh, very interesting. What what else what else should our listeners be keyed in on? Uh, what what other things have we not talked about here about PG and E? Um, I really think that the post bankruptcy admin claims are the big issue that hang over everything, um, or the po- the in bankruptcy admin claims. I should say the post petition date admin claims. Um, you know there are issues that people are interested in right now um, so with contracts and renewable energy that PG and E is going to be fighting with FERC about whether they have the ability to reject. Um, in my opinion, that's kind of like a sideshow. Those aren't material amounts of money for PG&E, at least based, as my, based on my understanding of it. And my guess is that um, something that investors, I think, are not focusing on enough is really this political nature of PG&E. PG&E is really a creature of California state government, and they're going to need relief, at least in the form of the ability to pass on rate increases in order for them to leave bankruptcy. So I would look for PG&E to be incredibly deferential to what they think the prevailing winds are in Sacramento, where you have a Democratic supermajority that has its own agenda and issues. Um, I also think that it's worth paying attention to PG&E's competitors um, and the idea that other municipal utilities might try to somehow benefit from this or other power-generating type entities other municipalities might try to start their own um, power utilities. Like there are all kinds of things that are out there that make this a really, really murky situation, Um, much more unusually so than the vast majority of bankruptcies I'm aware of, where you really don't know what's going to happen. There are just so many players out there um, that have power over PG&E and they're hard for people to predict. That's that's a very interesting perspective. And um, I, I may have to force you to come back on again to the podcast, uh, Jared, uh, as this, this process unfolds, because um, that's uh, from here in New York, uh, we don't we don't get to see all that. 
Yeah, no, this is a this is a fascinating bankruptcy, and it's a real privilege to be in the center of it. So Hastings here in San Francisco is a block from the bankruptcy courthouse, and my students have been going over and you know telling me what a great opportunity it is to see all these amazing lawyers in action and to see this great bankruptcy case. But there's just a lot of confusion, and there's no obvious path forward, and that's what makes this such an exciting and interesting distress situation for investors and commentators. Yeah, definitely. And, and one uh, that I'm sure you and, uh, of course, us here at Reorg uh, will continue to follow closely. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we will, of course, make sure to do this again. Thanks, Jared. Thank you for having me on, Angelo. It's been great. Thank you for listening. That's another week. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg. I'm Alex Brosman.